that bumper video was just long enough they got to stare at you awkwardly for, for, for a decent amount of time, but it's all good, right? Uh, one, one of the things that becomes really clear to me as I read scripture is that the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call out of my comfort zone and is a call into a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't really uh, make any bones about this, right? He says things like, if anyone would come after me, he must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. The call of the gospel is an all in kind of thing where Jesus says, it's not just haphazard. It's you are surrendering, submitting. Our life becomes about how Jesus calls us to live. So in this series that we're doing for the month of July, we've called Timeless. The subtitle is Ancient Examples of, of Courageous Faith. What we want to do is we want to go back and look at the Old Testament examples of people who walked out a life of courageous faith. These were people who were all in kind of people submitted and surrendered to God's call on their life. Now, it all sounds great to say, yeah, the call of the gospel is an all in kind of thing. The challenge is that the, the call to be all in on the gospel often requires a lot of courage. It, in, it invites a surrender of control. And I don't know about you, but I often lack courage and I really like control because it's in control where I feel safe. It's where I feel comfortable. And, and so I think this dynamic of God inviting us into something to radically surrender our lives to him and in that to discover true life, we, we find ourselves at this place going, ah, Jesus, I want to surrender, but I'm scared. I'm nervous. It might look like this. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I've been scared of heights, right? Now, as phobias go, I, I don't know what the phobia is for fear of heights, but I feel like the fear of heights is very rational, right? If I'm up in a high place and I fall, it's not going to be good, right? That feels totally rational to me. Now, one of the things I hate most is like wire mesh steps where you can see beneath your feet. Do you know what I'm talking about? That is absolutely terrifying. So there's this moment as a little kid, uh, I was maybe seven or eight, we're on family vacation, and we were at a water park in Arizona. We were there visiting my grandparents. And there was this one water slide. It was like four stories tall, which when you're a kid, that feels like forever, right? And, and my dad and brothers were telling me how great this water slide was. And I wanted to go down this water slide so bad. The problem was you could see between the steps. And so I would start up this water slide and I'm like, this is the time I'm going. I would get about the first landing uh, where the stairs went up to the next. And I would get there and I would look down and I'd go, nope, not today. Not, this is not the time. Right? And all day, it was like two or three times I did this. And finally, my dad said, he's like, Aaron, listen, I'm going to go with you. We'll do it together. You're going to be fine. Listen, I wouldn't let you do anything that was going to be uh, dangerous for you. And they had a, a double tube where we could ride together. He's like, I'll be with you the entire way. And so it, it didn't suddenly take my fear away. I was still nervous, right? My legs were still a little bit shaky as we walked up the steps. But my dad was with me the whole way. And we finally got up there. And I'm like, don't look over the edge, right? The, the lifeguard gives us a thumbs up. And we go down the slide. And it's like sheer joy, right? You're hitting these turns. And it was amazing. And I was like, this was awesome. I want to keep going. And my dad's like, well, it's about dinner time. So we're going to head out. And I was like, no. Like, I finally got over my fear. And I, I realized what I'd been missing. Now, the difference was I didn't suddenly become unafraid. The difference was my father offered to go with me and I trusted his presence. I trusted his guidance in the process. And so it instilled me with a courage that I didn't have on my own. And suddenly I realized what I'd been missing. 
Church, I think in a lot of ways, we live our Christian faith like this. Jesus invites us in to fully submit, to fully surrender, to give up control to him. And we withhold our lives because we want safety and comfort and control. And what happens is when we fully submit and surrender, we discover that life in relationship with the father is joyous and it's exciting. And we realize when we fully submit how much of the joy we've been missing. But it's challenging, right? To go all in, to say, Jesus, my life is totally yours. But here's the thing, church. Here's our key thought today. Courageous faith is about living with obedience to God's calling on your life. And church, here's what I want us to recognize. You have a calling on your life. And in this calling on your life that God has for you, it's two core things. It's salvation and it's a kingdom of vocation. Here's what I mean that. First and foremost, God is calling you to relationship with himself. The God of all the universe sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, to shed his blood for our sins so that we could be reconciled back to him. God wants to be in relationship with you. That is the first and primary calling of your life. As you respond to that call and say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you died for my sins. As you step into life in relationship with Jesus, God gives you now a kingdom calling, a kingdom vocation. And what I mean by this is that when you see the disciples responding to the call of Jesus in scripture, he changes who they are and what they do. He takes a ragtag group of of people like uh, Peter, who's a fisherman. And he says, now I'm going to make you not a fisher of fish, but a fisher of people. He takes a tax collector like Matthew or Levi. And he says, now you're going to be a follower of me. And he changes their identity and he changes who they are. Listen, church, you and I, when we respond to the call of God, he gives us a new vocation. We are sent on mission on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what I mean by that. You might be a stay-at-home parent. You might be a business owner. You might work on the manufacturing line somewhere. Uh, You might uh, be a a leader or manager in, 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 in a company. But wherever you're at, wherever you're investing your life in, your ultimate call is to be a, a, a bringer of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ into that place. And and this message of being sent is all over the New Testament. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And I want us to recognize, church, that you and I are to respond to God's call with full surrender and live as a sent people. And that is the call of courageous faith. So here's, here's the question, right? How in the world do we step into a life of courageous faith? Because as soon as we talk about that, I can think of a hundred reasons why I don't want to step into a life of courageous faith. I can think of a whole lot of reasons why I don't want to submit and surrender my life to God's plan and purpose for me. I can think of a whole lot of reasons why I would like to stay safe and comfortable. And not to mention for some of us in this room, we're saying, yeah, but can God really use somebody like me to have a significant spiritual impact in my family or workplace? I mean, I'm not the boss. I don't have significant influence. I'm not a person of position or power or authority. I don't really know what I can do. But church, I want us to recognize this morning that as the people of God, we have been called into relationship with God and we are empowered to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to have spiritual significant impact and influence on the spheres of influence that God has blessed us with. So that's what I want to push in today. What does this look like? How do we begin to step into it? And as we do that, I want to look at the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. As we look at Moses' story, I think we get insight into what it looks like and what it means to live this life of courageous faith. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, we pick up the story of the people of Israel at a time in their history when they have been placed uh, in slavery in Egypt. 
for generations they had been living peacefully in Egypt, a new Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know that the people of Israel aren't a threat, and he becomes nervous that the people of Israel will start a rebellion, and so he oppresses them and he forces them into slavery. The people of Israel are crying out to God for deliverance, and in Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses, you're the guy. You're the one who's going to lead my people to freedom. And this is where we pick up the story. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So here's the first point that I want us to to note. A life of courageous faith, we have to recognize that God uses ordinary people. I I think sometimes we look at the, the, the Bible stories and we think that somehow Moses or Noah or Elijah, that these people were somehow fundamentally different, that they were more courageous, that they were more put together, that they somehow had characteristics and qualities that we don't have. But when you read the story, church, you see that Moses is, if anything, he's a hot mess at this point. He's not someone who has it all together. He's not a man of position or power or influence. So, so let's flesh out this scene together, right? Shall we? So here's Moses. He, he's got his staff, right? And he's tending the flock. Now I have to imagine, uh, based on the rhythm of what shepherding is, that this was an ordinary kind of mundane day. Probably 90% of his time was just making sure that the wolves or something didn't attack his flock, which was pretty rare. And so here's Moses just out in the, the pasture on a normal day. We're not told why, but he decides to lead the flock over to Mount Horeb, also called the Mount of God. And as he leads the flock over there, I can imagine he's just, he's doing, done this a thousand times. So he's maybe bored and, you know, he's just kind of messing with his staff and correcting his sheep here and there. And he looks over and he sees a bush that's on fire. Now, mine's not on fire this morning. Uh, I thought about it, uh, but that felt like a bad idea. I didn't want to be part of a viral video like pastor burned down church making a an example. So just imagine with me, it's on fire, right? So Moses sees this burning bush and he looks at it and this might not even be totally rare. It's a dry aired climate. A brush fire can happen, but he looks at it and he goes, huh, it's not burning up. Am I seeing this right? It's on fire, but it's not like, it's not decaying. It's continuing to burn. And so he walks over there and he hears this voice. Now, You have to imagine how shocking this would be, right? Out of a flaming bush, you hear this voice, Moses, Moses. And and you could read this like Moses responds, here I am. I kind of read it as like Moses going, yeah, I'm here. Here I am, I guess. This bush is speaking to me. 
And, and it's God calling to Moses. And he says, Moses, I've heard the suffering of my people. And he says, now I, I'm sending you. Verse 10, he says, now go, I'm sending you. Now Moses responds in verse 11 like I would respond. Exodus 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, uh, who am I that I should go? Now p- picture this image, right? Moses is not a leader. He's not a king. The dude has a cloak and a staff and an army of sheep. The nation of Egypt is the most powerful military force on the face of the earth at this point. If I'm Moses, I'm like, me? You're sin- you're- what do you want me to do? You want me to take my staff and walk into Pharaoh and be like, let my people go or I'll hit you with my stick? Do you, do you want me to lead my army of sheep and like invade Egypt with an army of sheep? Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and when you look at it, his response makes sense. Moses is not a person of position or power or authority. Did did you notice? He doesn't even have his own flock of sheep. He's leading his father-in-law's flock of sheep. This means he doesn't even have wealth. He doesn't even have possessions. This is a man who's been displaced from everything. Oh, and by the way, if you go back to uh, Exodus chapter 2, you would discover that Moses is also a murderer. So there's that. In Exodus chapter 2, he sees an Egyptian man mistreating a Hebrew, uh, one of his brothers and a fellow Israelite. So Moses goes over, kills the Egyptian, and buries his body in the sand, but he gets found out. That's why he's here. He's not even a good murderer because he got discovered. And at time before, they had like CSI type crime fighting stuff, right? So Moses literally killed a man. He's on the run. And God said, Moses, you're exactly the kind of person that I want to send. I want you to take your staff and I want you to go and lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And I love this because church, God uses ordinary everyday people. And for some of us, our tension is, but can God use somebody like me? Can God take my hot mess and use me to make an impact in the life of another person? Can God use me to change the dysfunction and the brokenness in my family? Can God use me to be a reconciling influence in my workplace? Pastor, I don't know if you know me, but I'm not the kind of person to have that kind of influence. I don't have position. I don't have power. I don't have authority. I can't do anything. And yet when we see the story of Exodus, God doesn't pick somebody who has it all together. He doesn't pick some military commander. He doesn't pick a king. He picks a shepherd. And says, I want you to go and lead my people to freedom. And in the ordinary, everyday routine of life, Moses responds to God's call to be a shepherd of God's people. And there's the call in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And church, I think just as God sent Moses to Egypt. When you read the New Testament, you have this very clear sense that if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are following the way of Jesus. We are also a sent people to go into places of spiritual brokenness and oppression and to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I have a call on our life. And, and, and here's how it works, church. You, you might be in a workplace where you have a manager who's difficult. You might have coworkers that you don't get along with. Maybe your family is a family where there's a lot of dysfunction and brokenness and conflict. And those are precisely the places that you resent. You resent that manager that's incompetent and it's easy to get caught up in the conversations at work like, hey, can you believe what this dummy did and the decision they made and they're so incompetent? Or you have a family where there's just brokenness and dysfunction. And every time you go back to a family get together, you get caught up in the dysfunction 
rejection and you resent your family and it's really hard and it's really difficult. And those are the places we're going, God, I don't want to go to those places. And yet when you look at the gospel, I think there's this clear call to go into broken places, not with resentment, but to go in with the hope of reconciliation, redemption and restoration. And so we have to see church, our calling differently. Our call is not to go to a job and maybe it's not even a job that you like. It's not to step in there and go, I'm just going to survive another day. No, you step in with a kingdom calling and vocation and you go, I might be here packing boxes on a line, but I am a shepherd of God and I am supposed to have spiritual influence here and I am going to make a difference. It's to step into that family gathering where there is brokenness and dysfunction, where nobody gets along and to say, I'm a spiritual shepherd here, bringing the hope and restoration and redemption of Jesus Christ right here here. And you're going, but I don't have any influence in those places. God uses ordinary people. He doesn't call the king. He doesn't call a military commander. He calls a humble shepherd to go and face the most powerful military in the face of the earth. So God uses ordinary people. There's this call, so now go. Uh, the second point is this living out courageous faith is about God's character, not our circumstances. Right? Moses looks at his circumstances and he goes, well, I killed a man in Egypt. I fled. I'm watching my father in law sheep. There's a whole list of reasons why he shouldn't go. But when God reveals himself to Moses, his focus is not on Moses' circumstances. It's on the character of who God is. Notice in Exodus chapter three, verse five, as Moses approaches the burning bush, God says, don't come any closer. This place is holy ground. And what happens is God reveals himself to Moses as the one who is holy Now, when God reveals his holiness, what he's telling Moses is, Moses, I am not like you. In every way that you have failed, I am fully sufficient. Where you are unrighteous, God is fully righteous. Moses, where you are afraid, God is unafraid. God is holy. He is other. He is different. He is not like you, Moses. And this holy God is calling you. Where you feel incapable, he is more than capable. And it's this character of the God that calls Moses that is supposed to help fill us with a sense of courage. As the story unfolds, not only does God reveal himself as holy, but in verse six, he says this, then God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he goes, Moses, remember your story. And God reveals himself as a God of provision and protection in the past, present and future. Moses knows the story of his people. He knows the story of Abraham. He knows the story of Isaac. He knows the story of Jacob. And when God says, Moses, I am that God, he goes, look back on your history and every way that you saw me provide and bring protection before I am the same God today. And I can still bring protection and provision and power to do the things that you are incapable of doing. And church, if we believe what scripture teaches, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the God who called Moses and empowered him to face Egypt is a God who can empower and equip us to step into our places of influence and bring the hope of the gospel, even if we don't feel like we have influence. As God continues to reveal his character in verse seven, he says, I'm aware of the suffering of my people. And in verse eight, he says, Moses, I have a plan and a purpose for my people to lead them to the promised land. And here's the thing, church. When we recognize God's character, we see that the heart of God is broken for those people in places that are in oppression and bondage in their own brokenness. So when you think about that workplace scenario that's hard, that's difficult, the coworkers you don't get along with, the boss who's incompetent, God sees that whole scenario 
And he wants us to respond with compassion and with the hope of the gospel. And God's call in Moses' life is not based on Moses' circumstances, but it's rooted in the character of the God who does the calling. I missed this quote earlier, so I'm going to come back to it. Peter Enns, who's an Old Testament scholar, he said it this way. He said, it's God who will bring his people out of Egypt. He will display his might precisely by working through weak and ordinary means. And I love that. When you look at Moses, he's weak and ordinary, especially when you compare him to, to the power of the Pharaoh. I mean, the Pharaoh has chariots and horses. He is the epitome of might and power. Uh, Moses, with his staff, not even a leader. Moses is the epitome of weakness and brokenness. And yet God chooses to use a weak vessel like Moses to bring healing and restoration, to bring freedom for the people of Israel. He uses ordinary people. And that call is based not on Moses' circumstances, but it's based on the character of the God who calls that he is holy and powerful and sufficient and capable. And that God has called you to surrender your life into his purpose. But there's still this question, right? Okay, maybe God is calling. Maybe he wants us to have significant impact and influence, but here's still the reality of, it's just scary, right? It's terrifying to think about submitting and surrendering our life to God's plan and purpose. And Moses said in verse 11, right? Like, who am I that, that you're going to send me? And as the rest of the story unfolds, we see that Moses really wrestles with this call. So here, here's what I want to do for this last point is I want to push in and look at how overcoming our fears is really important. Not letting fear be the driver. And, and as we watch Moses' story, there's certain things that I think we're called to resist and some things that we're called to remember in the process of stepping into courageous faith. So let's look at, at Moses' story. First, let's look at the things that we need to resist if we're going to step into a courageous calling. First, I think we need to resist the what-ifs. And by what-ifs, I mean the hypothetical scenarios. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really good when God calls me to something. I can invent a, a hundred hypothetical reasons about why it shouldn't happen. How about you? You sit down on an airplane and God's like, I want you to have a spiritual conversation with the person in the seat next to you. And I'm like, Lord, do you want me to get escorted off by an air marshal? because they're going to think I'm crazy. Do you want that to happen? Or God says, I want you to, to have spiritual impact in your workplace. And I want you to have a spiritual conversation with your boss. And you're like, well, Lord, HR is going to think differently. Do you want me to have that conversation? Look, look what Moses does. In, in Exodus uh, chapter three, verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? He goes, well, what do I tell him? That's Moses' question back to God. He goes, I'm going to go all the way to Egypt and I'm going to tell Israel, listen, God has let you go. He's sending you to freedom. They're going to be like, oh yeah, prove it. What's God's name? As if the people of Israel will forget the God who has been with them in their whole story. Moses doesn't stop there. In chapter four, verse one, Moses answered, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? He goes, well, what if the people think I'm crazy? They're, they're going to be like, why would God appear to a murderous shepherd from nowhere? Really, God chose you, Moses. Really? This guy's crazy. He's been talking to burning bushes too long. We need to get him some help. And I don't know about you, but I'm really good at creating a lot of hypothetical reasons about why I can't respond with obedience. But listen, church, God has not graced you for the what ifs because they don't exist. 
They're the imagination in our head of all the reasons why we can't and shouldn't respond. But God graces us to step into the reality that's in front of us. And we need to stop coming up with all the hypothetical reasons about why we can't and trust the God who calls. Secondly, I think uh, as we respond with courage, we need to resist excuses. So Moses goes beyond hypotheticals. And in verse 10 of chapter four, he says this, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. (laughs) <laughs> which uh, I appreciate his uh, uh, manners, right? Excuse me. Pardon your servant, Lord. He calls himself a servant, but, but a servant is, is one who surrendered to the agenda and the will of, of the master. You don't get that right now with Moses, right? Pardon your servant, Lord. Excuse me, right? That's what he says. Uh, verse 10. Uh, but I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He goes, God, you want to call me to go to Egypt and you want me to appear before the Pharaoh? Lord, I'm not good at speaking. Other translations literally say heavy of tongue. It's like Moses, some have thought maybe he stuttered. He, he wasn't a good communicator. And he goes, you want me to communicate to the Pharaoh? They're not even going to let me in there. And then if I get in there and I just stutter my way in front of the Pharaoh, they're going to laugh me out of there. And then Moses comes up with excuses. And often we're really good at this. And in fact, in my life, I literally made the same excuse. In high school and college, I would get so sick when I had to public speak that I would literally, like, I would feel like I was going to vomit. The, the, one of the first times I preached at the college or the church I interned at in college, I was so sick the night before that I told God, I'm going to preach this one time and then I'm done. I'm never doing this again. You can see how that turned out. I, lo- I lost that battle. And that's where he's making the excuses about why. Finally, I think we need to resist disobedience, right? Verse 13, Moses, Moses isn't deterred. We'll go back and look at what God speaks into this. But in verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Again, he's polite. He goes, uh, please send someone else. Right now, now he's beyond excuses. He goes, excuse me, Lord. I just don't want to go. I mean, at least he's polite about it. I've, I've had this happen with my kids where it's like, hey, after dinner, I need you to clear your plates. And they'll be like, no, thank you. And they run away. And I'm torn because part of me is like, they were really polite. They said, no, thank you. But also that was really disobedient. We got to have a conversation, right? And there, there's Moses. Excuse me, Lord, I'm not going to go. And it's just outright disobedience. As you read Exodus 4, by the way, this is the first place in verse 14 where God gets angry with Moses. Because now Moses is putting his foot down and saying, Lord, I'm not going to be obedient to the thing that you're calling me to do. In church, I think we need to resist the what ifs. We need to resist making excuses and we need to resist disobedience because that is not what God has for us. And at the other side of our obedience are people who need the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have no idea who waits on the other side of your obedience. So what do we remember? How do we find a way forward in courage? Because I'm going to tell you, I don't think God magically takes away your fear. What God does is he promises to go with us. So church, what we need to remember is this. In chapter three, verse 12, God promises Moses. He says, and God said, I will be with you. Moses goes, how can I let the people go out of Egypt? And God tells Moses, you're not going to. I'm going to do it, Moses, but I'm going to use you in the process. And a lot of times we look at what God has called us to and we go, Lord, this is impossible. And God goes, yeah, it's impossible for you, but not for me. I am holy. I am capable. I am sufficient. And that holy, capable, sufficient, all-powerful God will use Moses in ways that will blow Moses' mind. 
Secondly, I think we need to remember that we're not supposed to go alone. As you read Exodus chapter 3 and 4, in verse 16, uh, God tells Moses, he says, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. He tells Moses, don't go by yourself. Go assemble the elders. Rely on this community of people. In chapter four, God will tell Moses, take Aaron, your brother, with you. And Aaron will be the spokesperson for you as you lead the people of Israel out. And Moses isn't called to do it alone. In church, you and I are not called to live a life of courageous faith alone. We're called to do it in community. You and I need a community of people. We cannot do this alone. We need the encouragement. We need the accountability. We need uh, the challenge that comes from existing as the body of Christ. And so where Moses is going to be tempted to think, I can't do this alone. God says, you've got a whole community of people. Assemble the elders and they'll be with you working on your behalf. So we need to remember that God is present. Remember that we're not supposed to go alone. In church, we need to remember God's power and strength. We're too quick to look at our power and strength and see those limitations. But God says, no, no, no. You need to focus on my power and in my strength. In Exodus chapter four, God gives Moses uh, three signs of his power. Because Moses is, he's making the excuses, he's making the what ifs, and God says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to take your staff, and he goes, I want you to throw it down. And so Moses does that. He throws the staff down, and it says instantly the staff becomes a serpent. And when you read the text, it says Moses ran away from it. Now, this isn't in the text, but can you imagine if you're another shepherd, like way in the distance, and you're watching, you're like... Guys, check this out. This guy is talking to a bush that's on fire. He just threw his own staff down and ran away from it. Right? Like the, the whole scene looks ludicrous. But Moses throws his staff down. It becomes a serpent. And he's so terrified that he runs away from his own staff. It literally becomes a snake. And God says, okay, Moses, I want you to pick it up by the tail. He's like, what? Excuse me? I want you to pick the serpent up by the tail. Now, if this is me, I'm like, I'm not Steve Irwin. I'm not the crocodile hunter. You make it become a staff first. That's not what God says. He says, pick it up by the tail. And so imagine, you know, Moses kind of reaching down and he takes it by the tail and it instantly becomes a staff again. Now God says, okay, Moses, I want you to take your hand and I want you to put it in your cloak. And he puts it in his cloak and he pulls it out and his hand is full of leprosy. Now, leprosy was a significant disease. It referred to uh, kind of a wide range of skin infections. But if you had it, likely it wasn't able to be treated. It was, uh, you were cast off from the community. This is a big deal. So you can imagine maybe the shock that Moses feels when he sees his handful of leprosy. God says, okay, now put it back. He puts it in his cloak, pulls it out again, and it's healed. And God goes, Moses, these are two signs of my power. He says, now, if the people don't believe you, I want you to do one other thing. I want you to take a jar. I want you to dip it in the Nile, and I want you to pour that that water out from the Nile River. And when you do, that water will be turned to blood. Now, church, we, we, we miss this because we're not as familiar with the culture. We see this and we're like, okay, what what, what is God doing here? Listen, when you look at pictures of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh wore a headdress in in the image of a king cobra. In the Egyptian culture, the serpent was a divine character. The serpent was one of the false gods that they worshiped. When Moses turns his staff into a snake, when God does that, he's saying, Moses, I am in control of those who think they are in control. The Pharaoh thinks he's in power. Moses, I am sovereign over the serpent that they worship. Moses, I am sovereign over the Pharaoh who thinks he has power. You're scared of the Pharaoh. Moses, I have more authority. 
When he puts his hand into his cloak and it becomes leprous and God heals it, he says, Moses, I am sovereign over creation. I am sovereign over sickness. I am sovereign over illness. God is displaying his power. Now, when he says, Moses, I want you to take water from the Nile River and turn it into blood, the Nile River was the life source of all of Egypt. This is a desert region. The Nile was what provided them with the ability to water their crops, to have life. And so the Egyptian culture, they worshiped the Nile as the lifeblood of their whole pantheon of gods. And what God is saying, he's saying, Moses, I can take what the Egyptians worship and I can turn it into blood, meaning I am sovereign and in control over even their gods. And these are significant displays of God's power. And he's saying, Moses, the things that you're afraid of, I have supreme control over. And church, this is true of us today. I see so many Christians getting caught up in the culture wars and we see the way the culture's going and we're nervous and we're scared and we sometimes get militant in the middle of that and we get skeptical and cynical and we have all of these things that are worked up. But church, God is sovereign over culture. There is nothing and no one out there that is not subject to the movement of God because he is sovereign and in control. And the things that we are scared of, God has power over. And it's time for the church to stop being shrunk back in fear and going, the God who called us, he is sovereign over you. Think you're in power? Our God is in power over you. And God is leading a movement, not of what we think. He's leading a movement of gentle shepherds who bring the hope and restoration of the gospel. Incognito. Finally, church, Two more. We need to recognize that God prepares and equips his people. 4 verse 12, Moses is told this. God says, now go. This is the second time he's been told to go. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Verse 15, you shall speak to him, Aaron, and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and I will teach you what to do. And I love that God says twice, I'm going to teach you what to do and I'm going to teach you what to say. And for so many of us, church, when God calls us to have significant spiritual impact in our families, in our workplaces, in communities, right? We've got the excuses. I don't know enough theology. I don't have the Bible memorized. What if they ask questions I don't know? And the word of the Lord is, go. I will help you. I will teach you what to say, and I will teach you what to do. Again, Peter ends the Old Testament theologian. He said it this way. He said, the deficiencies of the one receiving the call don't determine God's actions. God will see that his chosen vessel is adequately prepared. And we see all our deficiencies and we go, God, you can't use me. And God sees all our deficiencies and goes, that's precisely why I want to use you. Because what we feel incapable of, God is more than capable of. And when God uses a weak vessel, God gets all the glory. Here's the other thing too. We need to remember church that the process of obedience is the means of our maturity. The process of our obedience is the means of our maturity. Here's what I mean. Did you notice in both verse 12 and verse 15, God says, now go, I will help you and I will teach you. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to do. Notice that those are future verbs. When, when I'm Moses and I'm standing there in front of the burning bush and God is sending me, what I want to say is, Lord, take away my fear now. God, put the words in me now. God, tell me what to do right now. 
And God says, no, you got to go first. Respond in obedience. And in the moment, in the flow of responding in obedience, in the moment, I will empower you and I will teach you then. God doesn't equip Moses now. He equips Moses in the process of obedience. And what I want God to do is take away my fear now. I want God to give me the words now. I want God to give me the wisdom now. And he says, no, go step into the process. And as you are responding in obedience, as you are encountering the moments and the difficulties and the challenges in the middle of it, I'll empower you. Because what I want God really to do, if I'm honest, I want God to make me unafraid now so that I don't need to trust him. And God says, no, you got to go and trust that I'll meet you in the process. And it's the response of obedience and walking through the process that forms and shapes us as people of maturity. As this dialogue comes to an end, verse 17 Uh, God gives the final word to Moses. And remember that this scene starts in chapter 3, verse 1, with Moses tending his flock as a shepherd. Verse 17, God says, But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. And that seems inconsequential at first, right? Take the staff and I want you to go. I love the audacity of God. You look at a shepherd's staff. And there's not much to it. I mean, literally, this is a cheap piece of wood. And, and you look at the Egyptian military, and they have technology. Chariots were brand new. Part of the reason Egypt was so powerful is the nations around them, they didn't know how to defend against chariots. In church, what I love about this is God says, take this staff and you were going to bring Egypt to its knees with a piece of wood. The church, we're so nervous and scared about what's happening around us that we miss the fact that God is still sovereign and he's not calling us to go and wage a cultural war. God is calling us to step into the midst of brokenness as gentle shepherds who have answered his call to be obedient and to bear witness to the gospel right where we are. And I love, God doesn't say, get your own chariots and fight him back. He says, no, 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 take the instrument of a shepherd and go and minister to the people and lead them to the purpose that I have for them. So here's what I want to leave us with this week. I want you to reflect on uh, how is God calling you to see and to steward your vocation differently? You're not just a salesperson. You're not just a stay-at-home parent. You're not just a line worker. You're not just a mid-level manager. You're not just a business owner. In those things, your primary responsibility is a shepherd of the gospel of God's grace to have spiritual impact. As you think about that, are there places where you've been resistant to that? Are there places where you haven't stepped into that obediently? You've sensed God telling you to have spiritual impact in those places and you're like, oh, I don't want to do it. What, what are the what ifs, right? What are the excuses that you find yourself making? So I want you to reflect on this. What do you need to resist? So go back and look at that list of those three things we talk about. And what do you need to remember? Maybe you're going, I need to resist the excuses and I need to remember that God is powerful and sufficient. And finally, I act. What is one step of obedience that God is calling you to that you've been dragging your feet on and you're going, okay, Lord, it's time. I trust that you'll go with me and you will meet me in the midst of it.